come up on I'm in Studio B, sitting across from my good friend Daniel Chacon. And I'm sitting across from my good friend Benjamin Alida Sines. And we're both sitting across from Sergio Troncoso, who's our guest today here in the studio. Welcome to another edition of Words on a Wire. And uh, why don't we tell people who, who uh, not that people don't know who you are. In El Paso, <laughs> everybody knows who Sergio Troncoso is. In fact, they just recently named a library branch after this guy right here. Can you believe that? You know why? Isleta, the best part of town, by the way. It's the best part of town? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's because, you know, Sergio's from Isleta, and so they named a library after him. And well, you know, I, I'm from Fresno. I don't have a library named after well, me. What's up with that? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> Let me give a brief bio of Sergio before we continue the show. Okay, Mr. Library. Sergio Troncoso is a writer of essays, short stories, and novels. He was born and grew up in El Paso, Texas, the son of Mexican immigrants. After graduating from Harvard College, he studied international relations and philosophy at Yale University. Troncoso was inducted into the Texas Institute of Letters and the Hispanic Scholarship Fund's Alumni Hall of Fame. He is a resident faculty member of the Yale Writers Conference and an instructor at the Hudson Valley Writers Center. For news, visit his website at SergioTroncoso.com. <laughs> I think I'm going to do that. Awesome. Sergio, welcome to Words on a Wire. Hey, thank you. I love being on the show. You know, you guys are it in terms of literature and the border. So it's uh, terrific always to see you and read you, actually. I'm always waiting for the next book from Daniel and Ben. Let's talk about El Paso. What's your favorite part of El Paso, really? What are your favorite parts of, of El Paso? Well, I mean, you know, I love Isleta, and I've always loved Isleta. Uh, I was, I've been here for about four or five days, and eating La Tapatia, you know, going out and getting a chile relleno burrito in the mornings. Um, I love actually just going on the cotton fields, like towards Sanelli, towards uh, in Isleta, and uh, and just seeing the sunrise, I love to get up really early in the morning. You know, La Tapatia, of, by the way, has the best tamales in town. They do. Absolutely. Absolutely. No me digas nada. La Tapatia. A lot of our listeners don't actually live in El Paso. Give, give a little background of what Isleta's like, just so they can kind of get a. An well, image you know, of it. Isleta, a long time ago, was um, not even part of El Paso. It was actually at a certain point, it was. Uh, its own little town, and it's been around before El Paso was even El Paso in the 1600s. Wow. So it's sort of an ancient community in many ways. And then the Tigua community is right next to the Isleta Mission, and it's kind of more rural, and it's on the outskirts. And over time, I mean, now it's just a suburb of El Paso, and it was annexed by, by El Paso. And uh, But my parents moved there in the 60s, in the early 60s, when it was basically a colonia, um, there was no electricity yet, and there was um, no running water. We had an outhouse in the backyard, you know, which we had to dig ourselves. And by the way, <laughs> talk about a dirty job, especially when the outhouse collapses and you have to <laughs> dig it out again. And so <laughs> we, we would steal. Yeah, andale, Ben is making a face. <laughs> but imagine doing that job as a kid. And so we actually would steal old railroad ties to buttress the sides of the sand to make sure the thing would not collapse again. Well, I'm making a face because I remember an outhouse. I had an outhouse. I, you know, grew up using an outhouse when I grew up on a farm. Yeah. And I don't know. I kind of like indoor plumbing. 
No, absolutely. I, I love it. Well, you know, you guys, you guys both had outhouses. I had it even rougher. I, I, I had a house with our family, and we only had one bathroom. Well, well that's, <laughs> that's tough. Boy, we, we, did we fight over it. Seriously, there is a, a library in Isleta now called the Sergio Troncoso Library. Well, you know, they, yeah, they're, they voted, the city council uh, voted unanimously at the end of July to rename the, the Isleta Library branch after me. So that's for, what it means to me is that... That I, I hope it encourages poor kids to read from the mm-hmm. from the area and from the from the neighborhood. You know, I'm from the neighborhood. My parents still live in the same house that they built. Uh, my brothers are teachers here, and um, and I come back all the time. And in fact, I was just meeting with the the staff of the library on Friday as some of the things we're going to do. Um, you know, once they have the naming ceremony. Nice. Uh, when will that be? Well, we don't know yet. I okay. mean, because it's sort of a public bid process. They, you know, everything right. is part of the government. So you got to put up the sign up. Somebody has to mm-hmm. bid for it, and then they have to install it. And then I'll well, be it's going to be a big deal. Then it's going to yeah. be a, a, a pachanga. A pachanga. Well, I hope so. I, I really, I, I, you know, I want to do things with the schools mm-hmm. and the library that haven't yet been done. But you know, and and really make it a focal point in a way that that I can, you know, encourage. But, you know, it's to encourage poor kids and, and kids in the neighborhood to read and, and, and focus. I was this chubby kid from Isleta, that, and I haven't really changed. You know, <laughs> estoy un poco gordito. You can't see that on the radio. But, uh, <laughs> we can hear it in your voice, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I love to read. I, I, I amassed hundreds and hundreds of these little scholastic paperbacks as a kid from South Loop School. You know, every penny I had was to buy these little paperbacks. And I'd love to read. And it was very different from what it was. They used to cost 25 cents yeah. or 35 cents. Sometimes I even cheaper if you got them used. You know. Ah. <laughs> Sometimes the dime. I used to order them from the weekly reader. Yeah. yeah. You still read the scholastic books. That's no. awesome. That's why you're such a good YA. <laughs> oh, you don't. Oh. Not anymore. I stopped that. You know what my favorite children's book was? What? Danny and the Dinosaur. And not just because okay. it had my name, but it was a great book. And you know what mine was? What? It was um, The Outsiders, S.E. Hinton. That was then, this is now. Oh, well, I love Now we're talking book. about different yeah. levels of books, though, yeah. now. You're talking about YA. I'm talking about children's. Well, yeah. I mean, even younger than that. But, you know, I that's, think, that's I what think I remember. my favorite book when I was, like, around sixth grade is still one of my favorite books, The Little Prince. Oh, yeah, that's a good book. Or, all right, let's go a little earlier, The Cat in the Hat. I had yeah, all those green eggs and ham, all the Dr. Seuss oh, stuff. Oh, the Starbelly Sneetches. Those, right. that's, that was my favorite. I, I used think to read the it over and over again. aspect of, of Dr. Seuss You didn't so like cool. the Dick and Jane ones? See Spot no, Run? are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, you can't like that. You just learn. <laughs> I mean, <that> <laughs> boring. <laughs> Dr. The, Seuss was exciting. What about the Bernstein Bears? I always felt sorry yeah, for that, that yeah. loser old dad. You know, he, I think he's, a, he's kind of an archetype for Homer and, and maybe even influenced Homer Simpson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with a little bar, I mean, the little bear. Yeah. I, I really kind of had a, a boyhood crush on Eeyore from really? Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. Eeyore, really? He was yeah. always depressed. Eeyore. I know, but I liked him. Really? <laughs> yeah, I did. Well, yeah. he was attracted to the. And I like Pigpen in, in, in Charlie Brown. I uh-huh. really loved Pigpen. I really thought, I liked that he kind of refused to take a bath. Yeah. <laughs> I like winning. That that was... makes a lot of sense now that now that you, <laughs> that you mentioned it, Ben. No kidding. So, what what is your favorite restaurant in El Paso besides the Tapatia? Well, you know, I mean, it changes all the time. I'm trying to think of. Um, I just had breakfast at Elmer's, which was you know. It, oh, right wow, on Montana. Really yeah. Old school. Yeah. It's very old school. Dollar ninety nine yeah. breakfast, two eggs. Yeah, and I mean, two you know, I like bacon. simple. You know, relaxed. They give me a lot of coffee and. Uh, you know, it's just quiet. 
And and so I, I enjoy those kind of places. We're, no. we're talking. I, you, you nunca me creo muy muy. Uh, well, you <laughs> know. That, that, that comes from Isleto, by the way. Uh, well, you do live in New York. Uh, <laughs> Upper West Side, Upper mind West you. Side. Yeah? <laughs> uh, I think one of my, one of the nicest places to go eat on, on Monday night, taco night at the Riviera. Wait, where's the Riviera? I've never it's heard on Donovan. Yeah. It's on is it worth, a, worth yes, the drive? It is. Yes, it is. Monday, so, taco, Monday they only have tacos on Monday night? No, no, but it's taco night. That means it, all you can eat tacos. Taco night. All you can eat. All you can eat For tacos how much? Monday night. I don't know, Daniel. <laughs> what do you mean you don't know? You're over here telling us you like it because it's all you can eat. You don't even know the price? Like 40 bucks? <laughs> no. No, it's really good. And, um, of course, I like to go to Chico's Tacos on Alameda <laughs> because it's a scene. Right. I don't love Chico's Tacos. I, I'm going to make that. I'm confessing that yeah, on the air. Do I, I don't love Chico's Tacos, but I like going there. Right. When I first moved to El Paso, so many people took me to Chico's Tacos. They were very proud of it. And when I saw those little rolled tacos <laughs> swimming in that juice, I said, there's no way I'm going to drink that juice. <laughs> And so I ordered a hot dog, and they served it in a hamburger bun. <laughs> it, was, it was the worst hot dog. No disrespect, El Paso, but Chico's Tacos is really not your uh, your oat cuisine. Sergio Troncosa. We're talking to Sergio Troncosa. He's in the studio with us today. Can, can I just point out one other culinary thing that I did that I, I think you guys are missing out? Okay. Licon's Dairy. Have you been oh, to those asaderos? Oh, I have been to Licon's Dairy, and they have the best asaderos in the world. Oh. Yeah, yeah. They have great, great cheese I mean, it's there. not a restaurant, but but the, those asaderos are a little heaven in your mouth. I'm I haven't you. been there in years. I should go out <laughs> anyway, there Anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Daniel. No, that's okay. I just wanted to segue. Uh, we have Sergio Troncoso and a writer of how many books now is it? Five. Five books. Yeah. And one of them was called The Nature of Truth, and it came out with Northwestern Press, I mm-hmm. think. Uh, but you recently um, uh, republished it with Arte Publico. Right. And uh, so wh- what was that about? Why did, you, why did you decide to republish this book, and what did you do differently about it? Well, you know, it was a, it, it was a bit of an, uh, an alark. I, um, I was in between books, and I had a summer free, and I said, I can do this novel better. Mm. And and so I rewrote it without asking anybody or telling wow. anybody. That's and that's brave. Yeah, it is. well, you know, I I, I, I mean, I've wanted to do that with <laughs> with stuff. I I want to redo it, but I never right. actually take the time to do it. But you just committed yourself to do it. That's well, you know, it was like an intellectual exercise, and so so I, I wanted to tighten the language. I think there were two points in the plot that I wanted to change slightly. That that are important for character motivation. And, and one of them I, I hope I can read today. Yeah, that, on Poetic not, License today, we're going to have you read an excerpt from this. Yeah. It's a novel that, for me, in many ways, sets up the intellectual framework for some of the work that follows, some of the novels that follow. People don't understand that I'm actually trying to do something with all my work mm-hmm. rather than just, you know, what's the next story I want to tell. Right, right. And so, you know, it's all, I always come back to philosophy and literature. I love, that's why I studied and learned German. And I was, you know, happy to hear that some of Ben's books are coming out in German. You know, I loved yeah, reading Thomas Aristotle Mann. Aristotle und Dante. Right, exactly. <laughs> like Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, but, you know, the Germans do this all the time, and other people do, but, mm-hmm. but they're primarily known for that. And I love reading Heidegger and Nietzsche, and, and so I have a, this big philosophical background. And uh, and I wanted to just leave this book as best as I could. I'm sure you know I've already, I have already found mistakes or things yeah. that I don't that <laughs> would have changed. But I'm not going to do it a third time. So I rewrote it. At that point, I had had 
my first book with Arte Público. And uh, I pitched it to them, and they took it in like two or three weeks. Nice. You know, so it was always, like, I mean, it's like ri- ri- ridiculously in the quick side. And, and, and that's how it happened. Yes. It so like you're both with Arte Público. Yeah. yeah. My last book yeah. was, my first and my last book were with Arte. Yeah, yeah Arte Público is great. I you mean, know, I, they, they're, they're doing it. They did a great job with Hotel Juarez. Yeah. I mean, they're very, very supportive. Yeah. And, and Marina yeah. Tristan, you know, is so great. And Nicolas Canelos, you know, is good. And, and all of uh, that's funny. Marina's support. great. Nicholas is good. I'm going to tell you. No, they're all that. great. I mean, they all kn- <laughs> I know kidding, Nicolas very well. But, you know, they're all great. But the, the person you deal with day yeah, to day Marina's, is more Marina's, Marina. Marina's amazing. Uh, right. So the nature of truth, why didn't you change the title to the nature of the real truth since it's kind of different? No, no because I, it's really a novel about the quest for the truth and how it become an obsession. And it's a, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a different novel for you because most of your, most of your novels take place in Isleta and they're right. usually, you know, uh, uh, you know, poor families mm-hmm. or, you know, not very uh, – well, Helmut is not exactly rich. Yeah, but, but but that's not what I mean, though. Uh-huh. I mean, I mean, he's already a you know he's at Yale, I think he uh-huh. is. I mean, he's it, it's not the story of an Isleta family. It's right. Really, the, right. it's really almost more. You could probably compare it more to Bolaño, right. in in the sense that the mystery is an intellectual question, and yeah. uh, and, and the plot runs along you know these you know the parallels of philosophy and mm-hmm. you know. Asking these big questions. It's really interesting. I, I did, was it a challenge for you to write something completely different from what you no, usually write? No, no, n- no. Because I think you know, if you look at the last tortilla, for example, the very first story I wrote and the story that's in the last tortilla, the abuelita, it's about a Chicano at Yale mm-hmm. calling his that's Mexican right. grandmother and talking about Heidegger. <laughs> you know, right. and so it's not that much of a stretch okay. yeah. in my mind. Uh, but you know, it's Helmut Sanchez is a protagonist in the in the Nature of Truth. It's a great and name, Helmut Sanchez. He's half German <laughs> and half Mexicano, and he's really getting away from his whole German heritage and trying to reconnect with his mm-hmm. mother, who's from right. New Mexico. New Mexico, and uh, and you know, he's fine. He finds this old letter in the in the Yale libraries, and that says some horrible things about the Holocaust. And he sets out to find out the truth behind who wrote this letter. And, and an, an old professor who is, is his boss, Werner Hofgartner, who's about to retire, is probably the, the writer of this letter. And then Helmut travels with his uh, girlfriend, Ariana Sassolini, to Italy and Austria to find out the truth behind uh, Hofgartner's career and history that he's hidden. And, and, and so one of the, I mean, the two major questions, I think, in, in, the, in the novel that I think certainly play out in some of my other work is how much does past and the past transgressions matter versus what you're doing now and current transgressions, moral trans- transgressions? And how much do words matter versus actions? And this is fundamentally a question in Aristotle. Because, you know, all of it, and this is, by the way, a question for all of us as writers. Sometimes we're just sitting in a, in, in, a, in a small office writing. You know, how much more should we be doing in terms of action to either change things, help our community? And, and Helmut is faced with this, you know, in terms of he's, he sees this letter. He can just besmirch the professor, but he doesn't think that's enough. Yeah. He doesn't think that even close to enough. He needs to do something. Not just bring him down uh, from his university perch. And this this novel just came out with Arte Público in 2014. Yeah, the Nature of Truth by Sergio Troncoso. And uh, on Poetic License, in, in a little bit, we're going to have you read a, an mm-hmm. excerpt from it. But when I first moved to El Paso, like 14 years ago, 
people would always say, hey, do you know Sergio Troncoso? And I go, no, no, I don't know. Because you had, you had one book at the time. It was the, mm-hmm. uh, the, the last tortilla, and it had just won the Atzlan, the Premio Atzlan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was hanging out with somebody. She told me about your book. And I go, no, I haven't heard. She goes, oh, well, here, let me, you know, you can borrow it. So she lent me uh, her copy, and it was signed to her by you. And I never gave it back. I oh, lost really? contact with it. So <laughs> on my shelf, I still have her copy. And if she's listening, to, you know, you can have it back if you want. I, I suppose I could buy my own copy. <laughs> but I read you, it. I'll really, give you a copy. Oh, thank you. But I read it and, and, and really enjoyed it and was glad to get to know you. You are very, very connected to uh, not only the writing community, but specifically the Latino writing community. I mean, everybody knows you. And, and it seems like a lot of the, the important writers that we know, I won't, I won't mention any names, they go to you for advice. They, you're, you're like a confidant. <laughs> well, you could say Sleta. You could say, uh, you know, I mean, I've always said, by the way, because, you know, people say you went to Harvard and, you, you, you know, you went to Yale and, and now you sort of teach at Yale. And, and they put these places up on a pedestal. And that's actually something I don't want people to do because I've always said Isleta has as much to teach Harvard and Yale as Harvard and Yale had mm-hmm. to teach Isleta. And so I think if you remain grounded in what you're doing and you don't have any agendas, you're just trying to produce good work and encouraging the work of others who's great, that should be the only thing you're doing, you know, not the personalities. Too often, I think, as, as writers, I see a lot of writers, some young, some old, who get into the author as personality. And, you know, I don't believe that. I, I think that's a wrong way to take literature. And, you know, they want to be famous or they want to be whatever. It should be about the writing. It should be about the story. Then it should be about even experimentation. You know, that the tent uh, of American literature should be very broad and and wide and and that we should not relegate ourselves to Latino literature not being about books of ideas uh, and things like that. But I want to get back to something that you, that you said about writing and action. Right. Because in, in some ways, writing is an action. And I'm not sure, you know, because I'm, I'm pretty involved in the community and I get involved in immigration issues right. or what have you. And, and that, that's important to me. I'm something of an activist and I'm very happy to be involved in, on the grassroots level. That said, I know that, um, for instance, with my last particularly in my last young adult novel, that I've touched a lot of men's lives. I've touched a lot of gay men's lives. And I don't, I'm not just talking about kids. And I have men my age or older writing me letters saying that when they read this book, they wish they had had this book when they were growing up. And they say, and reading this book has healed the, the hurt boy in me. That's also action. And I don't think a week goes by that I don't get one or two letters about Aristotle and Dante and about what that book means to young people and old, all kinds of people, educators. And so that is an action. I think a lot depends on who we write for and our audience and who reads us. I think poetry touches fewer people than, say, novels. I think that's true. I think that's too bad, but I think that's also the truth. But I also think that I know that my when I write a book of poems, I always get people that are wanting to read the book. And I think that I think reading is still an important thing, and I think it, it touches people. That's why we write, and right. that, and and for writers, that is also action. But I also think that we have to step out of that 
Right. And I think teaching does that too. When I'm a teacher, I'm not being a writer. I'm being a teacher. And over the years, I've been here teaching for 22 years. It's a lot of lives. No, and, and yeah. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it it's not my my comment is not to say either or, um, and and that's not not what I meant. And and I think you're right. You know, when you sit down and you write a book, you are producing something. You know, you are acting. And and my comment was much more at a fundamental level, to in in a sense, bring some humility to what we do. You know that. We're privileged. We're writing. We're producing books. And I have a lot of admiration for somebody who does something that has very little to do with intellect but has another sense of craft to it, uh, like being a father or like being a mother or like being, um, you know, something that takes 20 years simply because I have kids, you know, and (laughs) I've known the hard work it's taken to learn to be a good father uh, the mistakes I've made, and all of that for me, you know, it balances out what I am as a writer. So I don't s- somehow tend to think because I'm a writer, this other life that I have as a as a father, as a husband, is less. And so it's it's a, at a much more fundamental level. It's actually not saying that writers are not actors because they are, but it's also putting in perspective what writing is versus in relation to the greater part of the world. Well, I think what you're, you know, what you're getting at is that living is an art. Right. And one of the things that, that, that I've learned as a writer, as a teacher, I thought I was teaching my students craft. And I, and I would focus in on all of that. But, you know, you can, get the, you can learn the plumbing of something and not be a good architect, Right. You know, mm-hmm. you can learn how to build a basic house, but it's not necessarily a beautiful house. Right. Because, right. because architects are artists. Right. Real, true arch- architects are artists. And so it's, it's about something else. And, I, and I, now I realize that you, we bring ourselves to the, to the table, and it's the person that's writing it that makes it art. You can learn dialogue. You can learn internal. You can learn point of view. You can learn first person. You can learn omniscient. You can learn all of those right. techniques, and it won't make you a writer if if there's not something inside of you that is empathetic and generous. Right. That's one of the reasons why you know we're able to uh, teach computers how to write stories, but they're not going to be very good because they lack that passion. They lack that spirit, that, that yeah. soul, whatever we. Duende. Would, they know. lack duende. duende. On one level, you can and say they it's, lack it's our flaws. Yeah. They lack our flaws. And I, I I think that there, there's craft, but I think one of the things that makes art is our passion that fights against the craft, that pushes on the boundaries of craft. And I think any something that just completely well crafted is boring. Right. Well, you know, it's really interesting. If you look at the work of Picasso, you knew that as a really young boy, almost he was, you know, not even a teenager, he could draw perfectly. Oh, yeah. He could do hyper-realism at 16. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like he wasn't interested in that. Yes, I can draw. I can look at a, a human being and I can sit down and I can just draw them perfectly just like that. Mm-hmm. What made him an artist is his intellectual curiosity, his his experimentation, his willingness to just just do something different 
and he produced beautiful art. And his passion. His pa- he was an incredibly passionate man all the way until his death. And, you know, sometimes that passion manifested itself in, you know, ex- exploitation of his partners. But he was incredibly passionate and always just an inquietude right. <laughs> about him. No, it's true. I mean, and it's, I think all of us who are, you know, who are, who are digging, you know, as Seamus Heaney would say, digging mm-hmm. into our lives – self-criticism or failures and our and and writing about it and and our successes and then you know digging again i think it's this kind of work this constant work and it's not relegated just to being in the library writing a book but it's to our families to to what we do as human beings it is about you know being an artist in the complete sense not just in terms of you know producing a a a book that's commercially successful and stuff and it it kind of makes me angry sometimes that that's in this culture is too often that's how people are measured. Absolutely, you know, yeah. you know and it's, it's, I think it's a, a misplaced of values. You know, I think of uh, Borges, his, his very first book, I think it was called Fevor de Buenos Aires. It was a uh, collection of poems. He self-published it right. and gave it away to friends, <laughs> you know. And uh, today, you know, um, there are just so many, so many books coming out. It's really kind of... Uh, um, there's a lot of voices out there, and good ones, and that's and great. A lot of good ones, yeah, yeah. And and but the you know it it becomes a question of your next book depends on how well your first book sold, right? Well, right. certainly in New York publishing houses, it really is a right. It really is a bottom line industry. But I think it's even so in university presses, even though they don't say it. I think a university Pu- press will publish you again if your first book sold. Can, can I ask you guys a question? Because this is a question I wrestled with recently with a friend. We were talking about uh, uh, Colin McCann uh, came and talked to us at Yale. And he was talking about radical empathy, how writers, you know, one of the things he's trying to foster is radical empathy of other communities. And, and a question that, I, that we talked to him about and other people about is empathy among the audience in which why are – aren't people in the broader community reading a Ben Sines or reading Daniel Chacon who are not necessarily Latino. And there are, but, but why aren't there more rather than seeing us as just we're in this box? Well, you know, I don't we're know. not in this box. I or, don't know the answer to that. I do think that in terms of the interesting thing for me is like my young adult audience isn't Latino. That's good. I mean, it is, right. but most of my readers in the young adult world are not Hispanic. Mm-hmm. But I would think that a lot of my readers, interestingly enough, to get to that question, there was a lot of people who I've heard comments about everything begins and is a Kentucky club. Mm-hmm. They don't like the gay stuff. Right. Where's their empathy? It's like, are you saying <laughs> yeah, that's true? You, that's oh, it true. just isn't my thing. They'll say, oh, it just isn't my thing. And I'm thinking, like, really? You know, I read like straight literature like most of the time. And, you know, like, <laughs> for me to say it isn't my thing is, is ludicrous and right. mean spirited and close minded. There's so many communities out there. Right. And then we belong to so many. But it's true that overall, that mostly Latinos read Latino literature. Yeah. That's mostly true. Mostly true. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my question is about cross-group, cross-cultural empathy from the audience to the writers who are writing. You know, and so many times, you know, people have read my stories and said, wow, you use a lot of philosophy in your stories. Like, they're shocked. 
and they're not Latinos. And, uh, you know, you've been judged simply by your name right. without actually reading the story. If there is no abuelita making tortillas on a comal in your story, right. how could you call yourself a Chicano? Exactly. We're going to close up this conversation with Sergio Troncoso, and we'd like you to uh, do a segment of Poetic License, if you can. So I'm going to read right at the midpoint of the novel. And um, Hellman, at this point, he's traveled to Austria, and he's um, tried to find out what uh, his boss did. And, and this is at the point in the novel where he decides to do something about it, action. It was inky black in the small bend in the pathway. Through the bramble of leaves and branches, Helmut could hardly see the road and river beyond. Behind him, the leafy underbrush rose precipitously. He had a clear view of the entrance to and exit from this bend. A street light by the Mill River Dam, a single bulb of amber light, barely illuminated the shadowy murk. He yanked open his backpack and almost plunged his hand straight in. Was he out of his mind? He patted the inside pockets of his leather jacket and found its gloves. Why wasn't he wearing gloves when he fell on prospect? He thrust his hands into the furry lining. He knew his blood would smear the gloves inside, but what choice did he have? Then he gripped the knife, which felt heavier than before, like a sword, and set it down beside him. He closed his backpack and pushed it out of the way. The knife was in his left hand, through the gloves, a sharp coldness surrounded his fingertips. Helmet heard only the wind through the pine trees. The street was quiet. He waited for what seemed like hours and still nothing. Crouching on his toes, he shifted his weight around. His left hand ached. Where was Werner Hofgartner? Had he taken a different way home? Helmet's head was dizzy. Would he truly murder Werner Hofgartner? Minor hot spots of pain erupted over his body. Helmut imagined Anja Litvak in pain and all alone. He imagined Anja in the trees above him, waiting to and wanting what he wanted. But why should he be the one? Why should he soil his hands too? He was not like Werner Hofgartner. He wasn't. What on earth had his evil mind done to him? Helmut thought, exhaling for what appeared to be the first time that night. Helmut was about to get up and run down Whitney Avenue, but then he heard the distinctive click of the cane on the ice and distant footsteps. The footsteps were getting closer, just coming around the bend. A wave of fear suddenly hits Helmut's face. What was he doing? Why was he here? Bits of snow cracked underfoot, not more than a few feet away. A certain elation mixed with dread overtook Helmut like a red cloud. Werner Hofgartner took the slight turn of the pathway into the trees. The knife dropped from Helmut's hand and clanged against a rock. Who's there? I know someone's there. Helmut hesitated for a moment. His vision was blurred. Tears streamed down his cheeks. You awful human being. You bastard. I know about Muldorf. I know about Anja. Helmut? What? Is that you? You monster! Helmut screamed at Professor Hofgartner, standing a few feet away in the half-light. You disgusting animal! You don't deserve to live! Amid the shadows, Helmut could see and not see the professor's blue eyes. Hofgartner held up his walking stick with the lance-like metal edge pointed at him. I know! So you do. I see. 
said the professor in a steady, deep voice Helmut had never heard before. It reminded him of a bear's growl. Hofgartner planted his legs apart and grabbed his walking stick with both hands. I found out everything. I had the documents. You liar, you murderer. The blood pumped wildly through Helmut's head in a red frenzy, and he felt dizzy. He wanted to vomit. You have been an even better researcher than I imagined. But this truth will stay between us. It will never escape these shadows, you young idiot. I'll tell everyone, you monster. What a stupid, stupid boy you are. Suddenly Helmut's figure disappeared into the shadows, and Hofgartner's a heavy blow from the walking stick's sharp metal edge smacked Helmut square on the left temple. Stars erupted in front of Helmut's eyes, and he crumpled to the ground. Another blow struck him on the neck. Another cracked against his ribs. Hofgartner was on top of him. The stick gripped in his hands, the stick against Helmut's throat. The professor was choking Helmut. I'll stop right there. That was uh, Sergio Troncoso reading from his latest novel, The Nature of Truth. Thank you, Sergio. And if that doesn't make you want to read his book, nothing <laughs> will. Sergio, thank you for uh, joining us on Words on a Wire. And thank you, uh, Daniel and, and Ben. I think you're my heroes in many ways, and uh, I am always privileged to be on your show. Well, thank you. It's thank our you pleasure. That. I'm Daniel Chacon. And I'm Benjamin Alire Sainz. Don't forget, the next book you read may save your life. I'm up on the wire. One side's ice and one is fire. It's a surprise.